Hey guys, I'm with Javi and I decided to make this podcast on a very pressing issue. I think we all have heard about it, but everyone does not know the history behind it. I'm talking about the ongoing crisis going in Afghanistan. How the rebellious Taliban group who call themselves as Islamic Emirates of Afghanistan is trying to confiscate the country. And so far they have captured Afghanistan's 34 provincial capitals, including the second and the third largest cities. So I've decided to make this podcast keeping in mind several things, you know. What if, what if this rebellious group take control over the entire country? That means it would be led by a militant organization. Will Afghanistan relapse into chaos again? If this ever happened, how much time will be needed to reconstruct this country? Will the citizens be free again? To ponder upon these vexed questions, we need to know the history. Now let's begin. First of all, we need to know who are Taliban. They emerged in the civil war that followed the withdrawal of Soviet troops in 1989 predominantly in the southwest and the Pakistan border areas. They vowed to fight corruption and improve security. Now, this statement is kind of funny, right? But yes, they vowed to do so. By 1998, they had taken control of almost all of the country. The leadership council is called the Rahbari Shura and is better known as Quetta Shura, named for the city in Pakistan where Omar and top aides are believed to have taken refuge after U.S. invasion. The council makes decisions for all the political and military affairs of Emirate. It is currently led by the Malvi Habibullah Akhunzada. Now, you all must be thinking, how do they manage their finances? How do they get their arsenals? Taliban primarily earns revenue through criminal activities, including opium poppy cultivation, drug trafficking, extortion of local business and kidnapping. Estimates of its annual income range is from $300 million to $1.6 billion. According to one estimate, it earned around $416 million from the opium poppy cultivation in 2020. That's a pretty huge amount. Mikhail Gorbachev became the General Secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union in March 1985. By then, Soviet forces had been in Afghanistan for over five years. They had failed to successfully combat the Mujahideen groups, most of whom were based in Pakistan. The Mujahideen received crucial support from the United States, but the critical factor was their Pakistan base, secure with the U.S. fully behind it. Pakistan knew that Soviet unit would not risk crossing the Durand line to take armed action on Pakistani territory. Mr. Gorbachev had met the Pakistani dictator in Moscow. He warned him that Moscow would ensure that Pakistan faces the consequences of backing the Mujahideen. At that time, the dictator of Pakistan was General Zia. General Zia was unfazed by the threat because he knew that the new Soviet leader was just posturing. He wouldn't do anything. Within a year of taking control, Mikhail Gorbachev was convinced that Soviet Union's Afghan quest was futile. In February 1986, he told the Communist Party that Afghanistan had become a bleeding wound. 32 years later, the wheel of the history had turned. It was the United States which was bogged down in Afghanistan. 
In September 11, 2001, Al-Qaeda operatives hijacked four commercial aircraft and crashed them into the World Trade Center in New York and Pentagon in Washington, D.C. The fourth airliner crash-landed in a field in Pennsylvania. Nearly 3,000 people were killed. Soon after, Osama bin Laden, the head of the Islamist terror group, was identified as the man behind the attack. In 2011, bin Laden was killed by U.S. forces in Pakistan, where he was hiding with some of his family members. He was buried in Northern Arabian Sea the same day. In 2012, tensions began to rise between U.S. and Afghan government after a video showing Marine urinating on dead Afghans surfaced in social media. Within weeks, protests broke after reports suggested that U.S. soldiers had burned copies of Quran at a military base. In March, a U.S. soldier allegedly broke into several homes near Panjwai, shooting dead 17 Afghan villagers, a majority of whom were children and women. Days later, Taliban suspended talks with the U.S. and Afghan government. In 2017, the U.S. dropped a massive GBU-43 bomb dubbed the mother of all bombs in eastern Afghanistan, targeting a series of caves occupied by Islamic State militants. This was the first time the country used a bomb of this size in conflict. The bomb hit a tunnel complex in the Achin district of Nargarhar province, close to Afghanistan's border with Pakistan. In August, former President Donald Trump outlined a new strategy for resolving the conflict in Afghanistan in a televised speech to troops at Fort Myer military base in Virginia. My original instinct was to pull out and historically I like following my instinct, Trump said. But all my life I've heard that decisions are much different when you sit behind the desk in the Oval Office. For 16 years it had. Despite a military surge, failed to call the Taliban insurgency, even though the group merely had the support of Pakistan. The reason for U.S. failure was no different from that of the Soviets. It could not carry the war into the territory of Pakistan, now armed with nuclear weapons. Destabilizing such a state would have incalculable consequences. For some time, the Pakistani leadership was concerned by the mercurial Trump, but then realized that it were empty threats, signs of the U.S. frustration. It continued with its Afghan policy as before. Significantly, India too advocated a broad-based government and Prime Minister Rajiv Gandhi was in forefront in advocating it. India took active measures, including contacting the former King Zahir Shah, living in exile in Rome, to lead it. This annoyed U.S. and Pakistan, both. Both wanted India to assume a non-operational position on Afghan developments and restrict its role to pressing the Soviets to leave. Once it became clear that Pakistan wanted a Mujahideen government without Najibullah's participation or Zahir Shah's leadership, India decided to fully support the Najibullah's government. This even before the last Soviet soldier left Afghanistan in February 1989. India's 2021 Afghan dilemma mirrors, to an extent, the one it faced post the Soviet withdrawal in 1989. There is a major difference, though. 
1989, Kabul was led by a strong Afghan leader, Najibullah, who had the capacity to hold the situation together with Soviet assistance. Thus, for three years, Najibullah kept the Mujahideen at bay. It was, with, it was with the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991 that the political unity of Kabul frayed. With that, the army fragmented, paving the way for the Mujahideen to take over in April 1992. Soon enough, intra-Mujahideen conflict resulted in complete instability. That set the stage for the rise of Taliban with Pakistan assistance again. The internecine Mujahideen hostilities fortunately provided India's strategic opportunities to influence the ground situation in Afghanistan along with Iran and Russia. But fortune does not smile at all times. The problem is that Afghanistan President Ashraf Ghani's no Najibullah, his capacity to hold Kabul together is questionable. Besides, the Kabul political elite is at odds with itself and if it phrase, will Afghan national security forces remain united? I think not. Another reason for India's concern in Afghanistan is that India built vital roads, dams, electricity transmission lines and substations, schools and hospitals. India's development assistance is now estimated to be worth well over $3 billion. And unlike in other countries where India's infrastructure projects have barely got off the ground or are mired in host nations' politics, it has delivered in Afghanistan and all of this will go in vain if the situation is not under control. Notwithstanding all appropriate diplomatic noises, India may make it. It has now no real capacity to impact the crown situation in Afghanistan. And even if the best option for India comes to pass, the formation of an inclusive government, its absence of open contact with Taliban will place it at a great disadvantage. So uh, now thank you everyone for listening to me till the end. I don't think I bored you. Come on, it's really interesting. Believe me. Now, I will come back to you with another engrossing topic next week. Now, I'm signing off. Ciao!